The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. So hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Video Insiders. And today we have with us Loke Dupont, who is a solution architect at TV2 in Denmark. Welcome, Loke, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to have you, Loki. You know, we caught your Demox talk and said, we need to have this guy on the show. So <laughs> here you are. Thank you for joining us. I love that you had that reaction to the talk. That's, uh, that's always nice to, to get that kind of feedback, for sure. Yeah, when someone says that he can, you know, take the live video stream and make it into VOD pieces in one minute, it's really intriguing. And today we're going to learn how... This is done. But first, maybe, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, your background. Sure. My name is uh, Logan Dupont. I'm working with TV2 for, I guess it's three or four years at least now, working as a solution architect in our streaming and player team. And uh, we're trying to sort of handle the parts related to playback, uh, streaming, DRM, CDNs, encoding, all that sort of stuff for our TV2 Play uh, online service, which is uh, direct to consumer. Before TV2, I worked for uh, TDC in Denmark, where uh, I was associated with the Blockbuster brand. TDC in Denmark has licensed the Blockbuster name and used that in the Nordics. And prior to that, I worked for a company called Extreme, uh, and I've been working with streaming technology for, I guess, around 15 years now, uh, both on the vendor side and now also on the, usually the, the customer side, going out and sourcing solutions from, from different vendors and and trying to integrate them and roll them out for our uh, TV2 Play service. Great. So you crossed the line from vendor to customer, and now you can find out what really works and what's only hype. Both sides of the table. You sort of you get, you get to decide more on the customer side sometimes. When you're a vendor, you sort of have these, these short-running projects where you sell to a specific customer, then you sort of move on to the next one. You don't really necessarily get to see things from start to finish in the same way. And uh, I wanted to see things more from start to finish and, and sort of get to be part of making the decisions on, on how things should work, uh, which is also not something that you necessarily get to do on the vendor side. So it's definitely interesting to have tried both. And uh, I think generally I like the the customer side more because I get a sort of longer running perspective on things than you sometimes get to do on the vendor side unless you have a sort of customers that you have an ongoing relationship with, which is not necessarily guaranteed. That's interesting. And so you mentioned uh, the Blockbuster brand was licensed. It was that or is that still active? Is it a VOD service? Yeah, that's still active. Um, so in Denmark, Norway and Sweden, you can go to blockbuster.dk.se and .no, uh, respectively. And it's a TVOD service. So they got a fairly big catalog of movies and somewhat unusual from the, for the Nordics, they also have TVOD for TV series, which iTunes, for instance, doesn't have in the Nordics. It's one of the few services that does. So yeah, that's still active. Uh, I built the first version of the Nordic platform that they're streaming on there. And uh, TV2, uh, we'll, we'll get into exactly you know, what your services are, but you obviously have live, uh, you know, live streams. Is that a duplication of your TV channels or is there some additional content you get over the top? Yeah. So we both duplicate the normal channels that we have on broadcast. On broadcast, we have um, our primary channel and that has a sort of slightly unique configuration for Europe, I think, which is on our primary channel, we go out several times a day to regional broadcasts. 
So we have regional affiliates, which are not owned by us, but which, according to our agreement with the Danish state, we have to let broadcast on our main channel for, I think it's half an hour each time, several times a day. So our main channel is really eight regional variants because we have these regional broadcasts in between. And then we have additional, I think it's six now, six what we call niche channels or sort of themed channels, which are like sports and news. And uh, we have one called Sulu, which is mainly for, for younger adults um, that has a lot of comedy, for instance. And all of those we broadcast on, on the web as well. And relatively recently, we introduced the concept of what we call pop-up events which are channels that don't run all the time. They're running for a specific event. Let's say we have um, Wimbledon, for instance. So Wimbledon has a number of courts. I think it's 10, 15, 20 courts or something that has ongoing matches at the same time. And we don't necessarily have the number of live channels to present all those. So we have these, currently it's up to 15 event-based pop-up channels that we start up, run the events on, and then shut them down afterwards, uh, depending on the need. They could also broadcast other things in sports, but sports is the usual concept that will need more channels because uh, if you have these ongoing sports events where there's a lot of matches ongoing at the same time, we want to start those up and then shut them down once we we no longer need them. And you can't really do that on broadcast quite as well as we can do on, on the uh, OTT service. And uh, that's a relatively new thing, but that's definitely something that we think brings additional value because there will always be people who want to see that specific match between these two people that they're fans of or something like that. And they'll always be sort of wanting that particular experience for them. So not all the channels might have a lot of viewers at the same time. Some of them might be only a handful or a few of viewers. But if you don't have those channels, sort of those people will think the service is bad because you didn't cover that specific niche that's very important to them. And that's a quite an interesting new thing that we're still trying to figure out how, how to best utilize. And with OTT, you're going direct to consumer. You have your own uh, app or it goes through another streaming service that's kind of an aggregator. Yeah, we, we go direct to consumer. So we have, uh, I think the latest number of, of subscribers were 800,000, uh, I think we published, users on TV2Play. Some of those come from agreements with our existing cable distribution partners. So for instance, if you have our channels in your cable package, you can also elect to have TV2Play available to you. Uh, and some of them are from direct sales uh, between us and the consumer directly without any other middleman in there. And relatively recently, we've become slight, somewhat of an aggregator ourselves because we introduced Paramount Plus content on our platform, which is a sort of add-on you have to pay extra to um, to get access to. So in a sense, we're sort of becoming our own sort of distributor in a way because we also aggregate other content that's not necessarily our, our content to begin with. But yeah, the, the whole service is direct-to-consumer. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, and, and the basic model of, of the channel, is it a public channel or a commercial channel? Is it advertising based or it's only subscription? We are in a slightly interesting <laughs> scenario for that. So we are owned by the Danish government, uh, but we are not the national broadcaster. The, 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 the national broadcaster in Denmark is DR or Denmark's radio. Um, they're the sort of main public broadcaster. We are also owned by the government, but we operate on commercial terms, meaning we're not getting any funding from the Danish government. We have to make our own money. And so we do that by running commercials on our channels um, and also requiring a fee to distribute the channels. So if you're a cable provider, you'll be pay us a fee for each of the channels that you distribute. Uh, and then we also run ads before and after programs. So because we're transmitting from Denmark, 
we are not allowed to break programming for ads. So there'll be ads before the program and after the program, but we cannot have ads in the middle of the program. In, in some ways, that, that sort of makes it easier for us because we don't have to care about sort of having ad markers within, within the middle of a beauty. But that's how we make our money uh, from both ads and from the revenue we get from distributor and channels and uh, then the subscription uh, fees we get for our direct-to-consumer service. And that's, that's how our funding works. We don't get any public funding, even though we are owned by the government, which is a sort of slightly odd situation, I guess. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And, and you're combining revenues from different sources. But, but where does this limitation come from that you can't break for commercial? I mean, is it local content or because it's foreign content or licensed? No, it's just the way the Danish law for broadcasting works. So we have other channels in Denmark that do that, but they, uh, they get around that by technically broadcasting from London, for instance. Um, so that's how a lot of the other channels deal with that. Uh, because we are owned by the Danish government, it, it, <laughs> we couldn't really do anything like that. Um, but but according to the requirement in Denmark, we have to have the programs complete without breaking them for ads, uh, as long as we are broadcasting under a Danish broadcasting license, basically. I'm struck by the fact that, and I think Israel is kind of the same way, but in almost every country of the world except the U.S., um, it's essentially state-controlled or owned media, and so there's certain laws and, and restrictions that are, that are just really unique. Yeah, so in Israel, for example, in order to broadcast, you need a license. And it doesn't matter if you broadcast on uh, over the air or satellite or cable or, or even the internet, to some extent, you need a license. Um, and at some point, there were uh, radio stations that did not have a license, but they wanted to broadcast. So they broadcast from a ship outside uh, the waters of Israel, and there's nothing they can do about it, you know? Because the law of Israel doesn't uh, apply there, but still you could receive the broadcast because it's close enough. Um, and another unique thing about Israel is that in the platforms, in, in the satellite and cable uh, platforms who have their own channels, like, you know, like movie channels, drama channels for programs, etc., they cannot have any advertising. Only the commercial channels who broadcast over the air and uh, through those platforms can have uh, advertising. So that's really uh, uh, unique. You know, you pay a subscription fee and, and you watch movies or uh, whatever content you have, like HBO channels, whatever, on satellite or cable. Uh, and all of that is, is commercial free. That's interesting. The really fun part for me, for me hearing that is uh, when you mentioned a pirate radio broadcasting from sort of a ship somewhere out of the, the waters of Israel, because that happened in Denmark as well back in the 60s. And I think it was one of the first pirate radios that, that did that uh, broadcasting between Denmark and Sweden, which is sort of fairly close to each other. Uh, it was running pirate radio from a ship between, uh, between the two countries. It, it's interesting that those things are so different, and yet some of those things are <laughs> fairly universal. Well, let's talk about your your workflow. Uh, describe for us how your system is built, and uh, you know, let's let's get into some of the technical details here. So, uh, the playout system for us is that controls the channels are a system called Marina, made by Pebble Beach Systems, and that's running the playout across all the channels we have today. Marina uh, is basically for those who are not familiar with how playout systems works. Uh, it's basically a long playlist of, of video. So it'll have a long number of VOD assets, maybe if it's something that we've previously recorded or if it's something that's produced uh, ahead of time. And it'll then go down and there'll be an ad break and it'll have it, all, all of the individual ads that it should 
transmit um, with a location to the file that the video servers will let play out. And then at some point, it'll also hit live events um, in the playlist, and those live events will then be switching some sort of live signal, whether that comes from satellite or whether it comes from an internal studio on our end. Uh, but all of this is controlled by by Marina, who has this playlist and is is sort of controlled by a, a continuity producer. So once Marina handles all these assets, it will switch, uh, in our case, physical SDI infrastructure to switch the channels um, and switch the outputs that we then get for streaming purposes and also goes to distribution to uh, distributors for cable and terrestrial and so on. And then we have a number of live encoders in our basement and our headquarters that receive these SDI signals. And we will then take those SDI signals and we'll transform them to digital signals, uh, IP-based signals, and shoot them out to AWS. We do that using Media Connect, which is an AWS service, but uh, I think it started out as basically just branded Sixty. So it's producing TS uh, out, going over uh, the Sixty protocol to Media Connect in the AWS cloud, where we will take those inputs and run them through AWS Media Live. And AWS Media Live then takes the single bitrate input and creates an APR set for us. Those APR sets uh, gets packaged by uh, Edgeware Live Inches nodes and then repackaged uh, for different formats, so for HLS, Dash, and so on. And also DRM gets applied and broadcast out. For the live channels, we also do live ad replacement. So depending on the format, those go either via Yospace or Google DAI, and then gets the ads replaced when we go to ad breaks. Um, and that's the channels that end up with the customers uh, at the end. So depending on the platform, we'll broadcast them either uh, Dash, HLS, or still smooth streaming for smart TVs, because smart TVs aren't that smart usually. So they like these uh, sort of old formats. And that's how the, the sort of broadcast chain works for us. Inside these live events, we will also uh, have inserted markers for the for the ad breaks so that we can do the live ad replacement. So Marina will insert a Scotty marker at the beginning of an ad break. So for all the ads at the beginning of that whole period of ads, it'll send, insert a marker. And then again, at the end of the ad break, it'll insert another marker for us to go back to normal programming and then switch off the live uh, ad replacement. And that's sort of how our... Uh, live broadcast works for our for our live channels so basically it is all cloud-based it goes up to AWS and it's being distributed from there yeah today it's all cloud-based uh, more or less once we get it to AWS and of, of course we need something on-premise that converts the SDI signals to an IP based signal and that's really the very light encoding that we do on-premise and most of the work is done uh, done in the cloud it used to be that we had a setup that was transmitting these via a dedicated fiber to a data center in Denmark where we had elemental deltas creating the live signals. Uh, but we like the additional uh, flexibility it gives us to use the AWS services that we have in the AWS cloud. For instance, when we switched from 25 frames per second for our live channels as the main output, we, now we are now outputting 50 frames per second. When we did that switch, it was fairly easy for us to create a version that was still 25 FPS for smart TVs that didn't like 50. So we could just spin up another Media Live channel and run that for smart TVs as long as we needed to until the smart TVs got smarter uh, or we deprecated some of the older smart TVs. 
And that would have required us to go out and buy additional encoders if it was on-premise. But now we could sort of just get away with spinning up these media live instances and then paying for them for a period of time. And once we no longer need them because we upgraded the apps or something else, we could just shut them down. And that, that gives us a flexibility that can be quite useful. So I understand the flexibility, and and of course, that's a primary driver, I think, for everyone uh, with, with going to the cloud. I'm just curious, did you, did you see any cost advantage, or you know, did you find that maybe at the end of the day, your costs were similar as running on-prem, but you just gained the flexibility? Can you comment on that? The cost definitely changes because you're not necessarily paying for upfront. So normally, you will have some sort of capital expenditure where you pay for buying additional, yeah, you buy additional encoders and that that's the way it works. So you buy additional streaming hardware for the live images nodes or for the repackaging and so on. Um, and then you buy sort of, you still pay sort of a monthly fee for if you're using a data center that is, that is external. So you'd still buy rec space and traffic and so on there. Um, that of course works a little bit different in the cloud environment where we pay for the encoders based on usage. So we, we need to be smarter about some things. For instance, when we're doing pop-up events, if we were doing the pop-up channel stuff on-premise, we probably wouldn't necessarily care that much about stopping the encoders because it wouldn't really make a big difference cost-wise. But we do care about it in the cloud. We can easily spin up a lot more pop-up events that way, but we do care about shutting them down because we pay for usage. So it, it changes how you look at that whole thing, but it's not. I'm not sure if it's more expensive necessarily. I think that depends a lot on on the use case you have. Um, for us, it was even if flexibility wasn't there, it would still be interesting for us for the improved reliability. Reliability. So, when we're using the AWS cloud, for instance, we can basically use two availability zones, which would be two different data centers, and the coordination between those is good enough that we can do that without a lot of overhead in synchronizing and and working out how to load balance between two things. And I would argue that. In the case that you're doing this with servers in a data center, a lot of places wouldn't necessarily have a complete uh, duplicate setup in a different data center, but that's very easy to do with with a cloud vendor because they simply ha- simply have that infrastructure ready. And, and you have a multi CDN strategy, or are you only using CloudFront? So we're not actually using CloudFront for video distribution. We do a CDN tender uh, once in a few years uh, or so, and uh, and the way that the current tender is set up, we have three uh, CDNs selected with a sort of primary, secondary, and tertiary status. And we normally balance between the primary and the secondary, uh, which for us right now is um, Akamai and Lumen Technologies. Those are the two CDNs we use the most, but we do balance traffic uh, between them. We're trying to move to having the traffic be automatically balanced, but we're still searching a little bit for solutions that are working well for us. So we tried doing in-stream switching because in our minds, at least, that that would be the ideal scenario. Even while you're in-stream, you would never ever see some sort of disconnection or some sort of uh, worse experience due to one of the CDNs performing badly. Unfortunately, it seems that, uh, at least on some platforms, the in-stream switching solutions are not necessarily great. So we are still evaluating whether to do switching when we give out the URLs to the clients or how to best do that and how to best monitor performance. Because... One of the scenarios we've seen when we're doing performance on CDNs is that for a particular ISP, for instance, we would see better performance on one CDN over the other CDN. And that's really hard to measure and and act on if you're not doing it on client side. And if you're doing client side, you might as well try and do in-stream switching, right? So 
We're still figuring out the best way to do that. I don't think we've quite solved it yet, but we do have multiple CDNs in use and we can switch between them for different, uh, different scenarios. Did you develop your apps or did you work with somebody to do that? So for our smart TV apps or connected TVs or whatever you want to call them, we have a third party that's doing those those apps for us under some, under our contract. But for web players, for Chromecast, for iOS, Android, those I would call primary platforms, we're developing them in-house with uh, with internal resources because having that that user experience is important to us. And we want to make sure that we we can sort of tweak that as, as much as we want. In my experience, at least, there's somewhat of a longer delay when you're working with a contracting partner for those apps in that you have to specify these things and get them to the app vendor and then they'll have to prioritize and put in the roadmap and so on. Sometimes we can move a little bit faster, I think, if we use it internally, uh, if we do do that development with, with resources we have and we can go down and talk to. Um, it also sometimes makes debugging things easier because sometimes it's just easier to be in the same room, I think. But interesting, as a TV station, uh, you're saying that the mobile clients are more important than the TV client you're doing, right? That, that's really interesting. I'm not sure that it's that the mobile clients are more important. Uh, in, in fact, we're seeing quite a lot of usage on the smart TVs. It's more the case that it's easier to find mobile developers than it is to find people who are familiar with the smart TV platforms. And there's a lot of work there to figure out the different sort of pitfalls on the different smart TV platforms. So it's more fragmented on the TV side. Yeah, I think that, that that's a bigger part of that, that we wouldn't be able to find anybody in Denmark that I think would necessarily have worked with smart TVs and uh, environments on them before. So if you have to find somebody who is familiar with those platforms and know where the problems are, we have to go with somebody who isn't local to us anyway. And so we might as well go with a company that has those internal resources to pull on. Um, ideally, those smart TV platforms would be better to develop for and we could find developers internally and we could have a better relationship with the smart TV vendors. But for now, I think this is probably the best trade-off for getting a good quality app based on the limitations that we have in finding people familiar with those platforms. Now, regarding codecs, you're now broadcasting uh, H.264 or you're doing HEVC? All of the stuff we broadcast today is H.264. Uh, we're not broadcasting any 4K yet, so we haven't seen a massive need to move to HEVC. Right now, our top quality, we actually just opted for some eSports to 1080, but most of the stuff we broadcast today is 720. So the benefit from using HEVC is, <laughs> is is less than it would be if we were moving to 4K. At some point, I imagine we will have to look at 4K. And in that scenario, I guess we would also probably need to look at HEVC or depending on how the landscape looks at that point, uh, AV1. Uh, of course, we still need to target Apple endpoints and Apple endpoints are HEVC. So I have a hard time thinking uh, we, we will avoid that if we move to uh, 4K. We live in a multi-codec world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in some ways, it's it feels like moving a little bit back in time, uh, because if you've worked with streaming for a long enough time, I think uh, you remember all of these different sort of formats you had to provide for mobile for VOD clips there, uh, the 3GP and all the weird ass uh, codecs that you had to provide for mobile devices. I even remember the when uh, Ripcode, I think it was, came out with a box to handle them all and, and transcode them on the fly. And then we had a nice long period of sta stability with H.264 that was just everywhere and everything was H.264. 
And now we're going a little bit back to having these fragmented codecs and having to handle that. It still seems easier than it was previously, but <laughs> I would still prefer a world where everything was just HEVC uh, or H.264, and that was it. We didn't have to worry about anything else. Yeah. AV1, you know, it's being used, for example, by YouTube uh, for 4K and, and, you know, have some uh, sample like 8K content as well. Um, and also Netflix is using it in some places for mobile, but that's all VOD. I didn't hear about anyone doing live AV1 broadcast. Did you, Mark? It's coming. It's coming, yeah. I'm it's sure. coming, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is the typical difficult conversation when there's a codec, uh, an emerging codec a standard is. Everybody wants to say, well, you know, I'll get excited, I'll adopt, I'll jump in once there's momentum in the market, you know, i.e. once there's a need. So it does become the chicken and the egg. I, I think with AV1, there are a couple things. Um the open source standards are pretty heavy and though they can do live, they take an entire machine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's not, and so, not economical to broadcast. Uh, it, it, it's more challenging. Let's just put it that way. And so then there's some people who have looked at that and said, uh, well, you know, it just, it doesn't make sense. It's too expensive or, or whatever. Uh, so they're waiting for hardware and there is hardware coming. Uh, there, there also, you you know, are some commercial software solutions that are faster, but yes, um, it's, it's VOD at this point that, that is largely true, but live is live is coming. And a lot of it too, is based on the browser. Um, because the whole conundrum in all this is that unless you can completely skip the browser right now in the browser, you have H264 or you have VP8, VP9. Um, Google is never going to support HEVC. So then what do you do? You know, if you want to improve your experience in the browser, upgrade resolution, reduce bit rate, well, you've got to go to AV1. <laughs> so another part of that whole thing that complicates matters is if we're talking about HDR, uh, because there we also have to deal with a lot of different standards and a lot of different things to, to handle it. Uh, for instance, it seems like the streaming world decided that HDR10, that's just the basic HDR, will do that supported everywhere. Uh, almost any browser, almost any client device that does HDR supports HDR10. For broadcast, it's all go with HLG. And then you also have to, for VOD, you also then have to do, deal with Dolby Vision. And is it, which profile of Dolby Vision is it? Is it based on a base layer? And is that base layer then HDR10 or HLG? So <laughs> it gets complicated. <laughs> We're really moving into an, an area where we will have to really uh, either stand back a little bit and see where where everybody else is, is moving towards or uh, be ready to support a lot of different things at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So we need to get to our main topic, and that is how do you create a VOD asset from a live stream in one minute? Can you explain it in one minute or will yes. that take more? Can you, exactly. Can you? I think I might need a little more. I think the first part of that is is the automated part. So what was important for us was that not necessarily that conversion happens quickly, that's important to us too, but in order for that to happen quickly, we also need to make sure that we know exactly when to cut those automatically, because otherwise you have you still have to wait for somebody to go in and set the in and out markers, and that will add time to that process. So the most important thing for us to start with was how do we get automated markers for start and end times for our programs? 
And um, that starts back in Marina. So since Marina is the one controlling the switching of signals, Marina is also the one who knows when programs start and end. There's a caveat to that all, but I'll, I'll get to that. So since we already have the live ad replacement stuff working, so we already have Marina insert markers for us that we can act upon on the live streams. So we fairly quickly decided that we would use Marina to insert markers for us when we had different programs. So Marina has different types of programs configured. It can be, for us, it could be either a program, it could be a live, it could be a trailer, or it could be a commercial. So we defined that Marina should insert markers for anything that's a program type or anything that's a live type. And that's inserted as SCOTI, uh, SCOTI 104 markers that we, in our encoders, convert to SCOTI 35. Um, and fortunately for us, the encoders we use from Elemental can insert the markers and also break the segments at the exact time that the markers are inserted. So if Marina is sending us markers with the start and the end of the programs, along with the program IDs, we know exactly where to cut. So we send that out as an HLS stream and we use the manifest to basically figure out when we get the markers and then take any segments within that period of time and, and sort of smoosh them together and create a VUD asset from that. We then send that through our normal encoding pipeline and that will get gets ingested as any other VUD. The problem with that is that takes too long. In our timing of that, it takes at least 10, 15 minutes, depending on the length of the program and how accelerated the transcoding becomes. So we can't use that if we want to have it ready right after. So the bottleneck here is the encoding time, the time it takes you to compress the video? Yeah, because if we have a, an hour-long program, there's going to be encoding time, and that's going to be more than one minute. It, it's going to be, a, even in the best case scenario, it's going to be a few minutes for, for us to do that encoding. Um, so that's, that's a bottleneck there. So the way we decided to solve that is when we are sending the live HLS stream, we are looking in the manifest and we are looking for the SCOTI markers. In the SCOTI markers, there's also, also a precise timing for when this um, marker was inserted according to the PTS time, and we can then convert that to real time. So for a period of time, we are publishing not a VOD, but we are publishing a URL into our video platform that pretends to be VOD, but is really just addressing down in our live ingest buffer with a timestamp for the start time and the timestamp for the end time. And the live ingest and the repackages will then create what looks like a VOD object, but is really fed from the uh, rolling buffer that the live ingest nodes keep. We publish that almost instantly when we get the end marker. Um, and then we have sort of, there's a bit of caching in the video platform and so on. So within a minute, it would become active on the platform. And in the background, we still keep on transcoding and still keep on processing the, the VG object that we created from the segments. And once that's done, we'll just replace it. And no, no one would know unless they're sort of refreshing it all the time. So for the initial cut, we will get a virtual VOD that is not exact precise the same way that the actual VOD asset will be because when we're addressing down in the live buffer, we are, we are sort of limited by how long segments we have in the live buffer, which for us is six seconds. So it will be within a six second time of when we wanted to make the cut, both for the start and for the end. And then of course, once we replace it with the VOD object later, it will become exact and it's within one frame uh, at either end. But for a period of time there, for 10, 15 minutes, we'll have a version that's playable, but might not be as clean in the start and end. And we'll also have additional graphics overlays and so on, but quite quickly that's replaced. So that's how we get it down to under a minute by sort of cheating and, <laughs> and looking at the live stream for a little bit. Um, but it's still better for our viewers than having to wait 15 minutes for the actual VOD to be ready. 
So the first version of the VOD is actually kind of a, a piece of a catch-up uh, TV, right? Yes, exactly. It's totally catch-up, but of course we have an end time at that point in time, so it will look like a VOD. The other part we're looking at introducing at some point is the ability to start over. So just giving a start time, and then when we don't have an end time yet, the user can just play along until the program ends or something. And we'll, we can give them that, that sort of start marker as long as the program is started. Uh, that's not there yet, but that's something we're looking to add as well so that we can allow them to restart the program uh, basically as soon as it started airing uh, if they don't want to go to the live experience. But in terms of the formats, the bit rates, the ABR layers, they're the same in the VOD and in the live? So they don't necessarily have to be, but for us, they are at this moment. So the HLS that we create the VODs from, so the, the HLS with the additional SCOTI markers for program time and program start and end, that's actually a high bitrate HLS because we use that to transcode the ABRs from. So that's a much higher bitrate, but nobody ever placed that directly. That That's just behind the scenes. When we transcode it, we transcode it to the quality that all other VOD on the platform is. Um, and currently that's the same as live in far most of the cases. But it doesn't necessarily have to, have to be. We can transcode those into whatever ABR set we want. Um, the important part for us is that the VOD assets we create from live matches the VOD assets we create from any other ingest method because we don't want the live to vote VODs looking any different than any other VOD in the platform. We don't have to maintain, we don't want to maintain them separately. We want them to just be like the VODs that we receive from uh, pre-recorded content or content that's produced ahead of time. By the way, what is your latency, your end-to-end -end latency on your live streams? It depends on the platform uh, because some of them are slower than others. But I think in most cases today, it's around 45, 50 seconds. Uh, it could definitely be better, but it hasn't been a focus area for us to tweak. So this is an interesting discussion because it, latency is really hot right now and everybody wants to talk about latency. Uh, and certainly, you know, if you're doing um, uh, gaming, for example, um, you know, online gambling, that kind of thing. Well, you know, that's pretty sensitive to, <laughs> to, to very fast response to the live event. But um, in terms of kind of more traditional broadcast, it feels like there's a lot of discussions, but the reality is, is that most services are in that 30 to 45 second range, you know, 50 second range. Do you feel the need to get that down? And, you know, maybe this next year, that's going to be a priority or what is, you know, what's your view of latency, how important that is? We're definitely looking to get that down. I think the main driver for that would be uh, when you're watching like, like a national football match and you hear the neighbors uh, yell before you see what happens. Or Twitter, you know, Twitter feed. And, and that's, I think that's probably even more, more so than betting. That's, that's a scenario we're, we're trying to get to. We definitely plan to tweak this and measure whether we actually add the latency in our live chain today. Can we tweak some of those values and get it down? Because with some careful tweaking, I think we can definitely get that down on, on at least most of the platforms. What complicates things a little bit for us is we have this live advert placement flow. And that happens on top of the live stream, and that adds latency as well. So because the way it works is that uh, Yospace or Google will ingest our manifest, and then they'll look at that, and then they'll output something in the other end. They need some sort of decisioning time. And that decisioning time adds latency, so we can't really tweak that as much as we would like to. Um, of course, they'll be interesting to look at some of the new uh, low latency HLS, but that's still very new and definitely tweaking it. But in reality, the, the biggest part is just that we don't want to be slower than broadcast. And broadcast has a latency too, but nobody really thinks about that. But there's, there's going to be latency when we do distribution to uh, terrestrial or cable 
providers and so on, they'll add latency as well in their networks. Uh, and as long as we can get down to get close to that, I think that's fine. I don't think we have to have better latency than the broadcasters because in reality, we just need to make sure that nobody sort of hears the screen before you know they see the thing on, on, on their stream. The other part of this that becomes tricky is as you're shaving away those buffers, you're potentially also making yourself more vulnerable to a bad internet connection or any sort of hiccup somewhere along that line of, of data, right? So it's a trade-off of how robust do you want to be versus how low latency do, do you want to get? Yeah, that is, that's so true. A follow-up question. Are you currently encoding with VBR or is it CBR? Uh, it's CBR, uh, more or less. I think technically some of it might be very constrained VBR. Basically, the reasoning for that is that um, if we want to have this vary and have the VBR stuff in the ABR sets, we need to do a lot of testing with our players and make sure that they behave correctly and they behave correctly under a lot of different circumstances. And so far, we the trade-off for us hasn't been worth it to to do that tweaking because we would rather just add a little bit more bitrate and then be sure that it works the, the way it's designed to. Uh, and I guess that's part of the, the tricky part with when we look at low latency as well is if you're delivering these segments so quick after each other, how does the bandwidth detection algorithm really work? It's super fascinating because, yeah, the buffer models, as soon as you shorten the segments and you're trying to really, you know, cram this video through quickly uh, to reduce the end to end latency, you know, VBR, of course, has a great advantage and the encoder can produce, you know, the appropriate uh, bit rate for that particular scene or that particular segment or, you know, or that frame even. Uh, and that's great. And that can reduce bit rate and, and still maintain quality. Uh, but it introduces other challenges. So then you go and you end up going to CBR, but then you end up having to encode, as you said, at a, at a higher bit rate than you may actually need to, you know, to deliver the same quality. So everything in video is a trade-off, you know, that's why every, every question starts with, well, it depends. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> it depends. Quality, bit rate, latency, processing <laughs> time, everything. It depends. Trend. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so what's more important to you? Is it the cost or the quality or latency, right? That that's exactly. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, well, that's why it's fun, you know. That's Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I guess we we all like a challenge. That's why we do this this kind of work. <laughs> if it was easy, it would sort of become boring quite quickly. Yeah, right? that's right. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, Loka, tell us what's next for you. What what are you working on now? Any interesting uh, projects that you can uh, talk about for uh, you know improving the system or going in new directions? So, one of the things we're working on um, is improving our automated QA. Uh, of our streams. So what we're looking at, for instance, is being able to monitor the streams as delivered for um, stuff like, you know, if there's issues with the manifest that we create, if there's something in the HLS manifest or dash manifest that shouldn't be there or not adhering to spec for whatever reason, we want to make sure that we have, uh, for instance, in HLS where you have these sequence numbers that they increment correctly and they don't skip a number or do anything like that. We want to make sure that the videos don't have any black screens in them and so on. And we also ideally, uh, but we haven't found a great way to do that yet, is be able to monitor the streams at different uh, ISP locations so that we know if an ISP is having an issue. We can sort of see that a little bit from our aggregate numbers in Conviva, but we don't actually have any data on what's actually happening. We can just see that the players are performing worse at a particular ISP. 
So trying to be able to sort of have these synthetic clients that we can deploy that will look at the streams and act as if they're a client and report errors back to us. That's something we're, we're currently looking at as, uh, as a way to improve the service and being able to better catch things before our customers catch them. And that's always a goal, of course, that if we know there's an issue before our customers know that there's an issue, we might also be able to fix it before the customers know there's an issue. And that's, that's always uh, <laughs> ideal. So more, more and more robust monitoring and being able to monitor the streams in, in different steps of our workflow, being able to look at what comes out of the encoder, being able to compare that to ideally what's on SDI, and then looking at that as what is the ABRs that come out of that and seeing that there's there's not been a corruption somewhere in that chain. Not that we've seen uh, seen that really that all that much, but we just want to make sure that we have that nailed down and we aren't seeing, you know, sometimes with, with streaming, you can end up actually outputting something that has slight errors in it and the clients will work with that. But then once you go over a threshold, then something goes wrong. So we want to catch that before it goes over the threshold, basically. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's very, very important, you know, to monitor the user experience and verify that everything is streaming uh, uh, correctly. And, uh, you know, fixing stuff before the client knows, you know, I wish there were some of uh, my service providers who would do that <laughs> before I have to yes, complain. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, the assumption is, oh, well, you're, you know, we're extra um, picky because we, uh, you know, because we're really sensitive to this stuff. In reality, I'm probably the easiest customer because I realize how hard it is. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, so you forgive their it, mistakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then, you know, when they just don't fix it, it's like, okay, come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> or they yeah. try to convince you that there's no problem, right? Yeah, there's they, no problem. Hey, I know a little bit about video. Or, <laughs> I know, know a little bit about this. Yeah, yeah trust me, there's a problem. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think I tend to be more forgiving of sort of technical errors, and I also know that if we if we contact customer service, they won't know what I'm talking about. So I just don't bother. You don't bother. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then less forgiving of stuff like, uh, did you actually release the stuff that you were supposed to release on time? For instance. HBO here in the Nordics has been very bad at releasing stuff that's been released in the US on time in the Nordics. That That's the stuff that tends to annoy me more than the technical problems because I sort of understand those. So if, if you're doing one minute live to VOD, you know, you expect them to do one minute uh, English to Danish or whatever <laughs> yeah. process they need to do it to, to localize the content. So you've built everything on Amazon. Do you have a special partnership with them? You know, even if not formally, but uh, do you find yourself providing input into the platform and they're, you know, taking that and maybe, uh, you know, in quarters ahead, deploying the features you're asking for? Or are you, you know, are you just taking what's off the shelf and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, using that as best you can? So we, we actually had a relationship with Elemental before Elemental became AWS Elemental. And at the same time, uh, some of our uh, other teams were looking at using AWS more, and I've used it in the past and so on. And, and so that sort of just happened by default, I think, to some extent, because once they bought Elemental, but we used, already used, we might look at the Elemental stuff in the AWS cloud, uh, along with the sort of general strategy for us. Uh, in a wider sense for TV2 and the technical departments there to move to to a cloud vendor. Um, so in that sense, it made sense to look at them over somebody else. I think generally they've been quite uh, good at listening to us. They've been receptive to feature requests that we've had and that might uh, be different for us 
due to the scale that we're doing channels at. For instance, some of the earlier AWS console didn't work great once you moved past like 20 channels. It was hard to get an overview and uh, and certainly they've listened to some of that uh, those complaints. Uh, we've also had other feature requests there. There's still some work to be done on their handling of support in a situation where there's some elemental stuff and some AWS stuff and they don't always necessarily play that well together. But in general, I think they've been quite they've been quite good about uh, us submit, submitting feature requests for stuff that we we needed. And there's definitely been stuff that we got into the products because it would be beneficial for us to have those things there. Uh, they've been quite attentive and, and that, and especially the AWS elemental parts. The the elemental uh, people has been very good at at listening to that, and they also understand broadcasters and understand our requirements, I think, uh, better than necessarily a lot of the other cloud vendors out there because the elemental people are used to talking to broadcasters more than a lot of other services are. Okay, uh, Loki, I think this was really a very uh, interesting conversation. We learned a lot. Our listeners always uh, like to hear from your side, right, after you cross the line, from the customer side, from uh, somebody who is not just, you know, selling a single product, but building a workflow based on several products and components, how they're connected together and how everything works for live and VOD. Uh, really interesting. So we'd like to thank you again for joining us today on the Video Insiders podcast. Yes, thank you, Loki. Thank you guys for letting me join. It's been very interesting and uh, you had some very good questions uh, as well. So thank you guys. Awesome. Keep up the good work. <laughs> you too. You know, Dror, we need to remind everyone about the Video Insiders LinkedIn group. If you're not a part of the group, it's an awesome community. There's, oh, I think like 2,500 people in it now. It's a very strong group of professionals. I'm pretty diligent about making sure when I accept requests that that the individuals are actually working in our space. And So that's on the member side and also on the content side, I try to remove all of those uh, spam advertisements, promotional stuff. That's right. Promotional. Yes, kind of keep it clean and interesting for our community. And you're welcome to post uh, your own content. It's value add. You know, that's the key. It's If it's a little promotional, but it's value add, that's okay. If it just screams marketing, no, that's not okay. <laughs> and you can also comment on uh, the actual podcast episodes. We're going to, we, we publish all of them the minute they go on the air. Uh, we publish them on the LinkedIn group. So you can comment there and give us your thoughts. And we'd love to hear from you. And if you want to come and be a guest on our show, you're also welcome to do that, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, thank you very much, uh, everyone, and happy encoding. Happy encoding. Stay safe, everyone. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.